You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hi, it's Noah Rosenfarb here again in another of our series of podcasts on Exit Strategy for ExitStrategySimplified.com. Today we've got a great guest in Carl Lutz. He is an expert in buy-sell agreements and life insurance. I'm really excited to have him here because this area of buy-sell agreements is something that a lot of business owners hear about. Many fail to implement the plan, and so Carl's here with us today to share his knowledge. Carl, let's get right into it and tell me about buy-sell agreements in general. Kind of define them for our audience and maybe just give them the, the broad overview. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me, and uh, this is one of my favorite subjects, and I'll, I'll tell you why I was uh, in business with my father for 16 years, and I've discovered that no matter what business you're in, that you know family dynamics around business planning and money and uh, the buy-sell planning is really the same story, whether you're a real estate developer, an auto dealership, a restaurant owner or what have you. So this is a real uh, fun subject for me, and I appreciate you having me here. Um, Pleasure. A buy-sell agreement, I guess the easiest way to think about it is it's like a prenup. I think most people are familiar with prenups. A prenup is something you sign before you get married, basically. to Not not everybody does, but often if if you have any kind of significant wealth or... um, you know, assets you're worried about that might get broken up in a divorce, you, you make an agreement in advance as to what happens to those assets before the event. So a buy-sell agreement is very much like that. It's an agreement between partners, business partners, that says, here's what's going to happen to your business interests in the event of X. And X is typically what they refer to as a triggering event. Um, a triggering event could be something like if your partner dies or somebody becomes disabled or if you're uh, a doctor's practice, you know, somebody loses their license or they're being sued or they want to walk away. They walk in one day and say, I'm out of here. If you have this agreement that you've written up in advance, this buy-sell agreement, which just simply means who's going to buy and who's going to sell and under what events will a buyer or a sell occur? Then, think about it, it's really challenging to negotiate things in, at the time of crisis. And most of those things I just mentioned are times of crisis. So that's, that's primarily what a buy-sell is. The other thing it covers often, and it should, is either a formula or a pegged value for that business interest because the business interest of a closely held corporation is very different in valuation than 
you know, if you owned uh, Apple stock, that's pretty easy to determine its value, right? But the stock of a closely held corporation could be mean something different to everyone involved. If I'm a surviving so, spouse, it means one thing. If I'm the guy buying, it means another thing. So, does that make sense, Noah? It's, it's yeah, that's great. Great explanation. You know, and Good. I think when I've spoken with owners around this topic, mm-hmm. a lot of the resistance I get is, well, you know, who knows how much it should be? We'll just deal with it when we get there. So, you know, explain the importance of designing this buy-sell agreement up front before there's a problem, before there's a crisis. Okay. Um, Well, first let me say that part of the reason people say that and they, they understand that it's valuable but they don't take action is because they're kind of afraid to address it. So it's a lot like people getting their wills for whatever reason, you know, like Often a husband and a wife can't agree upon guardianship of their children, so that prevents them from getting their estate planning documents in order. And really, when you make a decision not to do something, you are making a decision. You're saying, by not getting that agreement done, you're saying, we're going to let the chips fall as they may. And that's really risky business. So, you know, the benefit of getting that done, you know, I'm thinking of a client right now, These are two brothers. No problems at all. They get along great. They have a very nice business. They're both married. This business, I think they're in their third generation. Their grandfather started the business. They have very different job descriptions within the business. Their spouses have nothing to do with the business. So I met them a few years ago, and um, I really started working with one of the business owners, and we were doing his individual planning, which I strongly encourage people to do, that you should do your individual planning. The proper order would be to get your own house in order and don't just do the business planning. It should all be done together. But anyway, when I asked him a question, which is, what do you think you know, your greatest concern is when it comes to your finances? And, and he said, my 401K going up and down in value or something to that. He says, well, what do you think? I said, the fact that you don't have a buy-sell agreement. And he says, why? So I said, well, you love your brother. There's no problems. You love your sister-in-law, but do you want to be partners with your sister-in-law? Does she understand this business? No. So I asked the other brother eventually, would you want your wife to be part of the business? He said, absolutely not. And I said, how about the real estate? Because a lot of business owners, you know, own the real estate in which they operate out of. And I helped them to see that, just because we transfer the business from one brother to the other doesn't mean we got to transfer the real estate. Your spouse can continue to own the real estate as long as we have proper agreements in place and let the family enjoy the growth of the value of the real estate as long as, like I say, there's things in place so they can't evict the other brother. So they, they saw the light and they said, yeah, that makes, you know, we just wanted to, I think what was getting in their way is much what you said was valuation. So we used their accountant, we came up with a formula, and uh, they have a buy-sell agreement after 32 years. (laughs) Very happy about it. That's great. Well, no, that's a good success story. One of our other guests for our podcast had told the story about someone that didn't implement the recommendation and unfortunately, uh, you know, passed away and ended up with litigation. And, you know, I think that's a pretty common story. Do you have any stories like that where they they didn't implement and you've heard about the fallout? 
I know of stories where people haven't implemented, and yes, I've seen the fallout. They haven't been clients of mine. Um, but, you know, what happens is the surviving spouse, if we're talking about the event is due to death, um, they're scared because you've got to understand they just lost the income from that business. And what most business owners don't take into consideration is the real value the business is providing to the family. They look at the, the paycheck, whether it be a, a draw or a W-2, but that's typically only at the tip of the iceberg. It's the health insurance and the automobiles and the trips, and it's a lifestyle that that business is providing for that family. So suddenly that surviving spouse is going, oh, my gosh, I just realized how my life is going to change. And uh, so, they, of course, they want the value of that business to be a much higher number. Now, imagine this is a car dealership and it's 2008, right? We all know what happened in the economy in 2008, 2009. And I actually know I am familiar with a story about people that didn't implement. It's not my story, but it was a car dealership. Everybody loved each other, wives, husbands, everybody. No buy-sell agreement. He died. One of them died in 2009. They came up with a fair, or 2008, they came up with a fair price. But 2009 came 2010, and the surviving partner couldn't make those payments anymore because we all know what happened to the auto industry. Yet the the, the uh, widow demanded the payments, and then it did go to litigation, and it was a total disaster. Yeah. Well, I guess that's uh, why your expertise in life insurance and buy-sell agreements go hand-in-hand. So uh, describe a little bit about the role that life insurance plays when people want to fund a buy-sell agreement. How does, how does that work in terms of you know, who owns the insurance and what do people do? Well, so if we go back to uh, my, the client of the two brothers I was just telling you, they, they have a C-corporation. That's how they operate. That's for their operations, and then they have an LLC, which holds their real estate, which is a, another level of planning of separating the assets for better liability protection. And like I said, the LLC interest will, can, will pass to the spouse and things will go on. But the C-Corp value, you know, when you lose the key, a key player in an operation, so in this example, these guys each make about two hundred grand a year, and they have, as I said earlier, they each have very different job descriptions, and they contribute to the bottom line in a different way. So here's what happens. If, uh, let's say their name is um, Carl and Noah, and Carl passes away, not only does Noah suffer because Carl's no longer making a contribution to help to the bottom line of the business, but all of a sudden, Noah owns Carl's wife a bunch of money because the agreement says you owe my wife X amount of dollars, a million dollars, and if it's a good agreement, it'll say the terms, let's say 5% for 10 years. Well, there's a couple of, couple of issues with that. First of all, like I said, the key man just died, so who knows how that's going to impact the bottom line of the operation? Who knows how that's going to impact customer relations or employee relations, depending on the person's role? So we've got a bottom line that's uncertain at that point. Now we have a new debt. Noah's got this new payment that he didn't have before. Now my wife's dependent upon Noah's success. All right, so how do we make all that, those problems go away and make it a lot easier for Noah, make it a lot easier for my wife? 
and that is for NOAA to own insurance on me. If you own insurance on me, not in the corporation, but outside the corporation, that's what we call a stock, uh, a cross-purchase plan. And I'll, I'll tell you why there, there's a benefit to that. So NOAA owns the policy. He's probably taking a bonus out of the corporation to help pay for that premium. He's paying income tax on that bonus. However, when he gets the death benefits, it's tax-free, and then he has an obligation, this buy-sell agreement that says you need to apply those death benefits to your obligation. So now my wife, because I died owning some of that C-Corp interest, she technically inherited it first. She has a step-up in basis, which means it, when she sells it to Noah, there's, there are no capital gains under current law. So she inherits it. She sells it to the old, my old partner, Noah. Noah writes her a check. She doesn't owe any income taxes. Noah now has a beautiful new basis in the business because let's say it was a million dollars. That's a, he's got a basis of a million dollars at least on that 50%. And it's a real clean transaction. In addition to that, it might make sense for the C-Corp to own some insurance. And that would be key man protection. That's to help Noah absorb the shock absorber loss, you know, act as a shock absorber to the loss of all the other things I mentioned, key employee relations, client relations, who knows what. So, you know, I, I encourage business owners to recognize themselves as that they are the greatest asset of their business. Their business probably doesn't exist without them. So without them, they're going to suffer the greatest economic loss. And you want to put the surviving partner in the best position to succeed. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And and I think you also addressed kind of the ownership. So so in a cross-purchase agreement, each of the owners owns a, a slug of insurance on their on their partners. Um, That's right. And then on the on the key man insurance, the company would own insurance on each of the key employees. That's right? correct. So and. I was going to say there's one other way to do it. It's called the stock redemption plan where the corporation owns the insurance. And a lot of business owners fall to that plan because it just seems easier. But it creates different tax problems, and that's something probably you can speak to even better in, in a future call. So to get the step-up in basis and to grab all those other benefits, it's typically better as a um, – as a cross-purchase, unless there's multiple partners, because then it becomes a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. And, you know, where else do you advise business owners to leverage the power of life insurance in their personal planning and in their business planning? Aside from these buy-sell agreements, where else are you commonly recommending a solution? Uh, two areas. One, I try to help the business owner you know, I do a lot of work with um, dairy farmers, and dairy farmers have a lot of net worth but not a lot of cash flow, typically. They're typically asset-rich and cash-poor. So there could be a scenario where the farmer has one child who's going to come into the business, and he's been grooming that person along, and that child's now 30 years old or a young adult, and we're going to do estate planning, and we're going to find a way to get the business interest to that child. And let's say that business interest is worth $5 million. And then he's got two children who are not involved in the farm. 
Well, that, that can become a problem because if you don't do proper planning and if you try to leave the value of the farm to all three siblings and then there's one sibling that needs to buy the other two out, it typically doesn't work very well. So what we'll do is use life insurance as an equalization tool. And what we'll do is we'll talk about that fair is not always equal. So, yeah, sure, the farm's worth $5 million bucks, but that's only if he sells it. And everybody starts to see that. So what we'll do is put a plan together where the life insurance might be the asset that goes to the non-business children. And um, that typically takes care of the problem. And then, then the surviving child doesn't have to buy out the interest, and yet the other children still receive an inheritance. That's the simplest tool to use to get that done. And how about for those business owners that maybe don't have any partners, don't don't have children or a spouse that are interested and capable of running the business? Or where, where sure. do you see life insurance for them? Well, I'm thinking of a really great client. I just got off the phone with him a little while ago. He fits that description. His children aren't interested in the business. His wife has nothing to do with the business, and he's a sole he's a sole owner. So we have a plan, pretty much for liquidation um, happens to be an auto dealership so there's no way you know when you are an auto dealer you've got to have a contract they, the the um, Chrysler or Ford or whoever it is has to agree to the person that's going to be in the franchise so we got all sorts of complex issues there so when we did his planning it was just simply about making his family whole and we said what do you think the business is worth as a going entity and let's, I think we came up with about $4 million. So what we did was we insured him for $4 million. He's the owner. His wife's the beneficiary. And if, if she's able to sell the business, great. And if she's not, she was made whole. So there's a scenario where you're literally just going to say, we don't know what's going to happen with this business. We don't have a ready buyer in place. And... I would say this, too. Even if you had a business partner, in this scenario as an example, one mistake I think business owners make is they replace the value of the business as the thing that's going to replace their income. So let, let me clarify. If I was with that sole business owner and I said to that business owner, listen, pretend you're a Kodak employee and you make two hundred grand a year and you're 45 years old, how much life insurance would we have, and what is it that we would be insuring? And the answer is we would be insuring your income, your economic value to your family. So I try to get business owners, whether they're an individual or have partners, to insure their income to their family first and then insure the value of the business. But a lot of them get caught in a trap of using the value of the business to replace their income. But I want them to recognize that you are then basically liquidating an asset prematurely. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I think in, even in valuation, they say you got to take out the reasonable compensation for the owner before you value the company. So you got to kind of insure both sides of it. Um, Correct. In, in talking about, you know, buy-sell agreements, you mentioned some other instances aside from death where you'd want to define what would happen. Uh, sure. Disability is another one that there's an insurance solution for. Do you do you use insurance solutions and dis, as they relate to disability in buy-sell agreements? 
I, I do. It, of course, it depends on their occupation. Most of the business owners I work with, I, I call them blue-collar millionaires. These are guys that are they're in there getting their hands dirty. They're involved in the business. And a lot of times, they're not insurable from a job class when it comes to disability. If it's a professional uh, firm, doctors, lawyers, attorneys, absolutely, disability buyout is what we call it. That would be one of the provisions. All the same issues exist, you know, except somebody hasn't died. Um, but all, all the other, all the same challenges, you know, if somebody becomes disabled, then the earning and profitability of that company could be impacted, relationships could be impacted, and so on and so forth. So if you can fund that obligation in advance with insurance, you're going to be much further ahead than trying to fund it out of cash flow. So job class is a big part of that. And some of the other issues that you raised, you know, in these buy-sell agreements that aren't insurable risks, you know, the risk you wake up one morning and say, I don't want to do this anymore, or, right. uh, you know, someone, someone gets your product and, and dies and their spouse sues you, you know, how do you handle those within your area of expertise and, and given, uh, you know, do you, do you give advice on those aspects to your clients? Yes. Um, in a couple of ways. One is another another big one that we address or what we call a walk-away provision. So I'm thinking of a family where it was just mom and dad. They had three children, and believe it or not, they were bringing in their three in-laws. So we had six new people coming into this business. And a big part of the idea of transferring some ownership was a psychological move, you know, to really have the children feel like they had some ownership. But you can imagine, look at all the variables there as to what could go wrong, right? You've got that many new interested parties. So what we did was we put a vesting schedule in. Um, so as the parents were gifting interest to to the children and to their spouses, we, we put in a penalty that said, you know, just because this thing's worth 10000 bucks, if you decide to do a walk-away, you're, you only have a 20% uh, vested interest. Mm-hmm. So this way we're not putting mom and dad in a position to have to buy back the business. Um, you know, you couldn't make it a 0%, I don't think, because that sort of this, you know, undoes the idea of having them feel a piece of ownership. Right. But yeah, walk, walk away is something uh, that's fairly easily addressed. And, you know, it's easy to get everybody to agree because they understand geez, if he's the one walking away, i got to buy, you know, and they're thinking of it that way, so they're, they like the idea of a, an 80% hit. Um, but, but they understand it's that it impacts them as well. So we really want to disincentivize people from doing that. Now, that's yeah. a steep example. A lot of times, you know, if it's like two people and, uh, you know, you can have a walkaway provision that only goes to age 65 or whatever, and maybe we'll put a 25% discount, like two brothers that are partners. We're not going to penalize them to the point of no return. But, yeah, that's, that's how we do that. We typically put a discount on the, on the shares in the event of a walkaway. Mm-hmm. And then you had mentioned a story about uh, those brothers where they have an LLC and a C-Corp, you know, which is great planning. Do, do you see that as part of the protection against lawsuits? 
Are you doing some of that, you know, asset structuring? Yeah, and that's all part of it because, you know, really, if you think about it, retirement planning, business succession is what we're talking about, the succession that happens under different events, um, and estate planning, they all kind of go hand in hand. So it's often hard to address one without the other. Um, I think if you're doing that, that that could be a mistake. It's kind of like, you know, if, if, if you're working with someone and imagine you went to the doctor and you're like, you know, my elbow hurts, and he suddenly gave you a prescription for the elbow. I think most doctors are going to want to find out what's going on, what's causing the pain, where's it coming from, and often wherever the pain is showing up isn't really the source of the pain. So I think that's true with planning as well. I don't know that you can just focus on buy-sell agreement by itself. Now, if the business owners are stuck and they're busy and they're trying, you know, if you've got to get one thing done at a time, go for it. But I would, I would recommend that people create a context of, of holistic planning. And, um, you know, we're doing an estate plan now on a very large family, and that's what we're doing. We're, we're structuring. In the, we're not doing the uh, actual entities, but in my recommendations, we're isolating assets into LLCs. We're putting buy-sell agreements together. Uh, some other assets might be – we always try to separate operations from the real estate. That's, that's really – especially in the, in, the, in the ag world. Um, you know, agriculture – I talked about dairy farmers early, earlier, but crop farming, um, the value of real estate has gone out the roof. You know, so I'm working with a family now who's got – who in 2003 was worth $5 million, They're now worth $18 million. Most of that is in the value of real estate. So we try to protect the value of that real estate by keeping it separate from all the equipment and creating different entities. And then there's another great story of the children that aren't involved in that operation. It's okay for them to share in the ownership of the real estate because, of course, we've got agreements in place that's, that protect the successor owner. You know, It's not like the kid in California can force the sale of the real estate. There are things in place to protect that from happening. But you can see if 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 13 million of that 18 million is in real estate, and we're not burdening the second generation from buying that from mom and dad, but we are, you know, doing planning around the operations because we've got that in its own entity. So you can see all the benefits you can pick up by separation. It's just not lawsuit protection. It gives us more opportunities for planning. Yeah. So uh, Carl, you know, for our business owner listeners out there. What are some, you know, parting words of advice that you might want to share with them that we haven't already covered? I would say that they they should recognize the problems we're talking about solving right now are problems that don't exist yet. So if you're a business owner, you're busy. You've got employees. You're working in your business. You're dealing with putting out fires on a daily basis. And you always have in the back of your mind, I'll get to that other stuff. I'll get to the estate plan. I'll get to business succession planning. And the reason I think you do that is because it doesn't appear to be a problem right now that you have to deal with. But I'm telling you, if you don't deal with it in advance, it's going to be undue or it has the opportunity to undo everything you're working for and that you need to dedicate some time to put aside to deal with these issues before they're an issue. Yeah, good advice. I like to use the the term, you know, it's incredibly important, it's just not urgent. 
and uh, I think for for that reason, people tend not to look at it until it's urgent. And unfortunately, when it's urgent, it's usually too late. Uh, exactly. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, Carl, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you some, for some advice on, you know, crafting a buy sell agreement or putting life insurance in place for their family, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, a couple of ways. They can visit my website, which is Lutz and associates.net and that's l-u-t-z the word end associates.net um, or they can feel free to give me a call I'm uh, in upstate New York at 585-264-1111 and that would probably be the two best ways Great. Well, Carl Lutz, an expert in buy-sell agreements and life insurance, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all our listeners, don't forget when you download us on iTunes, please uh, put some feedback down there for us or on ExitStrategySimplified.com. Feel free to leave some comments. We'd love to hear from you. Carl, thanks once again. And to all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.